Pikimai, Kakimai, and welcome to Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand National. When wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in the United States, the park's vegetation began to rapidly change. And it wasn't that the wolves were eating all the deer. It was that the mere presence of the wolves was causing the deer to spend more time hiding in the forest and less time out in the open eating grass. Ecologists call this the landscape of fear. And University of Auckland marine biologist Ari Spixma wondered if the same thing could be happening closer to home, in the Lee Marine Reserve. But with sea urchins instead of deer, and snapper and crayfish rather than wolves. Alison is off to the Lee Marine Laboratory to find out more. So we're in a, a tank room at the Lee Marine Lab, so this is salt water being pumped through these tanks? Ah, uh, yep, yep it is. And have you got a sea urchin in there? Yep. Oh, here's one of the little guys here. A prickly wee thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, so sea urchin kinna? What's sea urchin kinna, um, yep, so its scientific name is uh, Evichinus chloroticus, and this is pretty much the most common sea urchin you'll find around the entire coast of, of New Zealand. So that one's pretty small. Yep. They grow pretty big? Around northeastern New Zealand, you'll find them inside the reserves up to about um, 120 mils. But I do believe they can get up to maybe 150 down in the fjords where it's a bit colder. Yeah, so these guys can live, they reckon, up to about 10 years or so. And um, they kind of maybe grow 10 mils per year. So where does that sit in the animal world? So these guys are echinoderms. They're actually really closely related to starfish, sea cucumbers and stuff like that. So what makes them special is that they have a water vascular system. So pretty much they pump water through themselves, which fuels their tube feet. Uh, so it allows them to move around uh, using kind of a, a water exchange system. So it's covered in spines and yep. that's what, just protection? Yes, but they can also help to capture food. Um, so if they're sticking up into the water current and a bit of kelp drifts over top of them, and it gets wrapped up in the, in the spines, and then each spine can independently move, and so they can then shuffle the food around to their mouth, which is actually on the underside of their body here. So you can see this fleshy, fleshy bit there. Oh, right, um, in the middle, underneath. Yep. So there's a small beak called an Aristotle's lantern that kind of pokes out of that, and, yeah, that's what uh, chews away at the food. Most of the food they eat is going to be kelps and seaweeds. Um, if they're really hungry, they'll pretty much eat anything, though. So uh, I've found some eating uh, bits of rag, sea sponges, so which are actually an invertebrate. So they'll, they will eat other animals, but uh, most of the time they stick to kelp. And that's what they eat. What eats them? The bigger they get, the fewer predators they have. Uh, so when they're really little, kind of a, a whole host of things will eat them. But probably their two main predators are the snapper, and then also the lobster. Snapper will kind of bite them and, and crush them, uh, but they're kind of limited to maybe only eating the very small ones, so up to maybe 50 millimetres, whereas lobster, depending on their size, can access much larger sea urchins. Uh, so kind of a very large lobster can eat one that's maybe 90 mils in size. Um, and how they do that, they kind of grab them with their two front claws, I guess, and they'll roll the urchin over and then they can access the soft, fleshy bit around their mouth. Ah, oh, that's its weak um, spot. Yeah, and then they'll pretty much just rip it open, and then they can get to the gonads on the inside, which is pretty much the only really edible part of the sea urchin. Now, that interaction between the sea urchins and those predators, that's part of the focus of your PhD? Yes. So my PhD's been looking at how sea urchins 
become affected by um, predators and, and what food they eat in terms of their behaviour. There's a theory known as the trophic cascade theory, which is when predator numbers are high, they can effectively control herbivore numbers, so herbivores like the sea urchin, uh, which keeps their numbers in check, which means they're not overgrazing on the, uh, the kelp, and it keeps the ecosystem in a good balance. If those predators are removed, then the herbivore populations will explode, they'll overgraze, and then you're left with, uh, in my case, a reef that's got no kelp on it, has got low coralline algaes and turfing algaes, not as productive, can't hold as many different organisms that rely on the kelp. So I've heard people talk about the kinner barren, so is that yes, what's that's... happening around Auckland where you get lots of kinner and not much else? Yes, that's, that's exactly it. What's happened is that lots of the predators have been removed, mostly through overfishing, which has led to the sea urchins kind of having more success, I guess, not as much as eating them, so their numbers increase and then they overgraze the reefs. It doesn't happen absolutely everywhere, and the further kind of into the gulf you go, the less it's happening. So in really kind of sheltered environments, there's kind of less barren areas. So around, around the coast of Lee, where we are here, most of the time you'll find them kind of between three and eight metres. There'll be barren zones where there's lots of urchins, no kelp. The more exposed you go, that zone shifts a bit, so it'll start a bit deeper, but you'll find it down to maybe 12, 13 metres. So have you been carrying out experiments here in the lab, or have you been working out on the field? A bit of both. I was going out and doing uh, surveys, looking at how many urchins there were inside and outside the Goat Island Reserve, and then also the Tafranui Marine Reserve. So I was looking at how many urchins there were, what size the urchins inside the reserves and outside were, and then whether they were cryptic or exposed, which is where the focus of my um, research has been. So cryptic versus exposed is what, whether it's hiding in amongst the rocks or whether it's sitting out on a reef? Yes, yeah, so cryptic is urchins that are hidden away or at least partly hidden away, I like to think of it, say, below the surface of the reef, whereas exposed is, as it says, out, out in the Just open. out and bold. Yeah, so the main theory around the trophic cascade is that it's direct interactions between predators and their prey. So the predator has an effect by eating the urchin, which removes it. But it's starting to kind of be shown now that the predators can be having indirect effects, which can have the same effect as if they were to, to remove them from the reef. So by causing the urchin to fear for its life and stay hidden, which is cryptic, the urchin's not going to be out on the reef as much and therefore might not graze as much kelp, so um, might not be having such an effect on the reef in the same sense as if it wasn't actually there. So it's enough just for the predator to be there? Yeah, that's what studies are starting to suggest. So that deer in Yellowstone National Park where wolves just being there have kind of uh, led them to change where they'll go, where they'll eat food, so they're not kind of in the high-risk areas, if, if that makes sense. Is that what I've read that's called the ecology of fear? Yeah, yes. So what I've been interested in is, is seeing if uh, urchins are more cryptic inside the reserves as opposed to outside of the reserves, and if so, is this due to more predators inside the reserve, which is one of the major benefits of reserves. They, they let predator numbers recover. Or is it a fact that also inside the reserves there, there's more food, so the urchins aren't actually having to come out onto the open to graze, they can rely on food coming to them so they find a crevice and then they can stay in that. 
So it's pretty tricky to tease those apart. Yes, I guess so. Firstly, we did the, the surveys to kind of look at, look at the differences inside and outside of the reserves. And what we found is that there were a lower number of urchins inside the reserve, which is an effect of predators directly removing them. But at the same time, the urchins that were inside the reserve, more of them were cryptic, and they were cryptic to a much larger size than the urchins outside of the reserve. Basically, from that, we thought, you know, the two main things that could be influencing this are either there's more food inside the reserves or else there's, um, there's more predators inside the reserve. So that's when we came back to the lab and started doing some lab-based experiments to kind of complement those surveys. OK, now you've got some results to talk about. Should we go head back inside to chat about those? Yes, yep, yep. So you can see the, uh, the graphs. <laughs> So what we're looking at here are some of the graphs for one of the papers that I'm hoping to publish out of all this stuff in the, in the very near future. First one here is the proportion of Evachinus chloroticus, or Kinna, that were exposed within each size class inside and outside of the reserves. So what were you finding between what was going on inside the reserve and outside the reserve? These reserve ones, most of the urchins, until they were about 80 millimetres, were almost exclusively cryptic whereas for the urchins in the fished areas, uh, only the very small urchins, so those less than, say, 40 millimetres, were, were cryptic, and then there was a steady increase in the amount of exposure we were seeing uh, as their size increased. Within the marine reserve, where there are lots of predatory fish, they were hiding until they were quite large. Yes. Whereas outside, without fish, they were just out and about. Yes. So that could be because of the fish, or it could be the difference in yeah. food, food as well, which is what the next, next graph is pretty much showing. So um, the mean Aclonia radiata, which is the main, um, main type of kelp, and outside of the reserve, there's basically no kelp where we were surveying, whereas inside the reserve, the mean abundances were kind of up around 10 to 15 plants per square metre. So it's quite a, quite a massive difference it's in the amount of, uh, amount of food that's potentially available for the urchins to eat. So those were the kind of two conditions we were looking at, food and predator cues. And for predator cues, we used crushed sea urchins, which, which mimicked another urchin somewhere in the area being attacked. Um, so the, the scents and the juices that, that came out of that kind of is what we were hoping would represent a good kind of alarm cue for any of the other urchins in the area. Help, help, my neighbours are being eaten. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> So what we did to kind of test whether food or predators were having an effect on the sheltering behaviour was set up some lab-based experiments. We set up a reef within each of those tanks um, and then we placed 10 urchins on each of the reefs, which is kind of a, a reasonably high number of urchins. It kind of represents a fair number, say, inside an urchin barren. And then we subjected them to different kind of combinations of the two treatments. So some of the urchins were exposed to the cues of a crushed conspecific, while others didn't have a conspecific, but they had drift algae placed into the tank. So the algae kind of just swashed around and it found its way into crevices and whatnot. And then there were combinations of both as well, so food and predator cues. And then for about three weeks, I would get up Every four hours, I would go and look at these urchins and see what their behavioural state was. So simply was looking into the tank, identifying where each urchin was, and then recording whether it was cryptic, hidden below the surface of the reef, or else exposed. And was it worth it? 
Oh, it was good. I got some very good results out of it. So by the third week of the experiment, there's a major separation between the plus predator and the minus predator um, treatment groups, where when predator cues were present, a much higher proportion of the urchins were cryptic uh, on a daily basis than when predator cues were not present. And this was regardless of uh, whether there was food in or not in the tank. So they were effectively looking like they were hiding from predators. Yep, yep, that's, that's basically the conclusions we came up with. Fear was causing them to uh, be more cryptic, which kind of backed up what we were seeing in the field. So it was, it was a really cool result, and it, it means we can now add kind of more to the trophic cascade theory that predators don't actually have to be uh, having a direct effect on the sea urchins to uh, potentially limit how much kelp they graze. So fear is a powerful factor? Fear is a very powerful factor. So you're back working out in the field at the moment? Yep, we've created these kind of large quad pods. Think of a camera tripod, but with four legs, uh, which gets spread out over the reef with a GoPro facing straight down onto the reef over top of a group of urchins. And then we film for an hour to watch how they respond to different kind of cues. So we've got crushed urchins being put in, pilchards. So all the cues are housed within a kind of pot that's got a hole in holes in it. So this... Okay, so the scent can diffuse out. Yes, yep, yep. So we've got an empty pot just um, to see if they maybe are responding to something just being put there. Um, and then also one that it's just the urchins. This one here is a video of the urchins where there's absolutely nothing added. and that's... It's, it's really cool seeing the urchins move around. It's that thing of speeded up time. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of one of those things that a lot of people, I think, don't actually know they move. They just think they kind of sit there. But they're actually really awesome when you can uh, speed them up. So here we have when a crushed urchin gets added to the scene. Oh, there's quite a lot of movement. They're out of there. Yeah, they are straight out of there. So what it's looking like, again, in the field, urchins are responding to chemical cues, and it seems that there is some specificity, if that's the, the right way to say it, uh, about the, the cues. So they seem to respond stronger to uh, one of their own being crushed than, than a fish being smashed up. In terms of investigating your hypothesis of does ecology of fear play a role in the marine ecosystem out here... The answer certainly seems to be yes. Yeah, it's certainly looking that way. Not just wolves in Yellowstone, but snapper and sea urchins yep. out here in the Lee yep. Marine Reserve. Snapper <laughs> seem to affect the simple old, uh, simple old sea urchin out here as well. And it's now kind of looking at that and seeing if a fear cue is strong enough that the urchins will stay away from an area long enough that kelp can kind of regenerate in an area and kelp forests regrow. That was Ari Spixma from the University of Auckland's Institute of Marine Science. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kakite anō.